I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the LRB Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Schatz, and this week we're talking about the great filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard, who died on September 13th in Switzerland at the age of 91. Later in the show, I'm going to be talking to the great filmmaker Claire Denis about her relationship to Godard's work, but we're going to start with the film critic Jim Hoberman, who uh, is a contributor to the London Review of Books. Jim, I want to start by uh, recalling a great scene from uh, Godard's breakout feature, Breathless from 1960, in which uh, the filmmaker Jean-Pierre Melville, playing a director named Parvalescu, is asked by Gene Seberg what his ambition in life is, and he says to become immortal and then to die. It seems as though uh, Godard has been pretty successful in achieving that goal, but what is it he's become immortal for? Well, I think that uh, it's safe to say there is no filmmaker who has been more adept at uh, deploying the language of cinema than, than Godard. I would not say that he's the only great filmmaker, just that I can't think of a, of a filmmaker who has, been, has done more with the, uh, with the elements of, of film than he. He started out, of course, as a film critic, uh, writing for Cahiers du Cinéma in the 1950s. And, you know, one of the really striking things about Godard's early criticism is that he's incredibly passionate about certain kinds of American cinema, gangster films, noirs. And in fact, Breathless is dedicated, I think, to monogram pictures. Why, why did the American cinema of that period speak to him so profoundly? Well, I think in a general sense, the uh, French moviegoers, and particularly these passionate young cineasts of whom Godard was one, uh, responded to the uh, return of American movies, which had been absent uh, from their screens during, during the war. Uh, so that would, be, that would be part of it. And that's how they came about certain things. For example, Film noir. Film noir is, is not a French invention. It's a French term for a certain kind of movie which really had no particular name in the United States, a certain tendency that came about during the war, during the period when uh, France was deprived of American movies. And then suddenly they saw this and they identified it as something, they named it film noir. I think the same thing was true in a more general sense with American movies. Also, they, they were more sensitive to the individual styles of certain filmmakers. And um, uh, a great favorite of Godard's, Nicholas Ray, who was someone who had no particular reputation in the United States. I mean, he did make one extremely successful film, uh, Rebel Without a Cause, but that was largely because it was the movie that introduced James Dean, who was already dead, 
to American uh, audiences. But Godard and Truffaut and the other writers adored Nicholas Ray. I think that the Godard came up with one of his fantastic aphorisms that um, if uh, cinema disappeared, Nicholas Ray alone would be capable of, of, of reviving it. And so I think that they just had, you know, like a huge enthusiasm for cinema in general. And it, it would be fair to say that they hated the French film of the period. Now, some of that is like Oedipal, and it's not absolute because they did admire Jean Renoir. They did uh, admire Jean Cocteau. And they did, particularly uh, Truffaut, revere uh, Jean Vigo. I mean, Godard was uh, uh, open to uh, Jean Rouge, but these are all figures who were sort of marginal in French cinema. They they loathed what they called the French cinema of quality, and uh, you know, American movies were a useful stick to uh, uh, to beat that with. You know, B movies. I mean, it was a something also that seemed very American, uh, although there are French analogs to that. Sure, and and Melville, of course, was developing his own sort of homage to the uh, the film noir, and he was considered kind of the godfather uh, of the new wave at the time until he and uh, Godard had a break. But you know, go- another thing that's probably surprising to a lot of people about Godard's early years, given that he you know later went on to become identified with the New Left and Maoism and so on, is that he started out as something of a right wing anarchist. Yeah, I think that's a fair. Assumption. I think that it was more that he was apolitical, but that he definitely skewed towards the right. Now, I'm not sure if that has to do with his um, the fact that he came from a right wing, certainly a right wing, if not reactionary family, and uh, uh, spent the war in uh, uh, total security. I mean, in in Switzerland, and that his uh, grandparents, if not his parents were German sympathizers. So I, you know, I'm sure that that played into, let's say, his, um, his sense of the world when he relocated to, uh, to Paris. And you may know better than I what it was that, that pushed him to the left. I mean, to me, it seems like he had a, um, a dislike of consumer capitalism, but that's not necessarily a left-wing position, that he was opposed to the French war in Algeria. But again, that's is not necessarily a revolutionary position, certainly not the position that he that he came to. And, and interestingly, the film that he made uh, about the Algerian war, Le Petit Soldat, which was banned by the French government, was about a, a member of the OAS, the, the pro-Algerie Francaise terrorists. And the only scene of torture in that film is a scene of torture by the FLN, not by the French army. Well, there you go. That it's that he actually made kind of a a, a reactionary film about the uh, uh, the Algerian war. And you know, La Chinoise, a movie which had a huge impact on, um, let's say, American New Leftist students like myself, who were you know uh, connected with the New Left or affiliated with SDS and and so on, is a satire. It's not. It's not particularly a movie that that is uh, um, uh, supportive of that of that cell. And you know, I, at the time, I I did not get. I did not pick up on that at all. I mean, to me, it was just fantastic that 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 he was making a film about this. And even when he said that it was inspired by Dostoevsky's The Possessed, 
you know, a, a, a totally anti-revolutionary you know, work. It didn't, it didn't register. I didn't get it, you know, but he, then he changed after that. In fact, I think it might have happened in the course of making La Chinoise because his collaborator on that film, his his wife, the, the young Anna Wiazemski, who was the uh, the granddaughter of François Mariac, conservative Catholic writer, she was definitely moving in the direction of Maoism. I, th- I believe that it was partly under her influence and her uh, commitment to those uh, that young uh, student cell that um, he too began to think, well, perhaps these uh, Maoist students are, are onto something. I want to just, you know, backtrack a little bit to Breathless and the electrifying impact that it had on filmmakers and film culture. Now, of course, Breathless is associated with the great actor Jean, uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and with the use of jump cuts and so on. But what was it about that film that was so enthralling at the time that made it seem so fresh and radical? Well, I have to go back to my own, you know, uh, response to it when I, I thought I was I was in high school and I was a um, a film buff. And I would say that it was the attitude which uh, appealed to me. I mean, certainly Belmondo was a, a charismatic figure in the movie, his character. And uh, uh, the presence of, of Gene Seberg also was a a kind of remarkable thing. I mean, because she had been, you know, she was an actress in Hollywood. I mean, how did, you know, how did this happen? The jump cuts, I think, was part of the, I mean, I think that was just part of the attitude for, for me. I mean, the, uh, uh, you know, the whole, I, I don't remember registering that. And I would say that um, I saw it around the same time as um, Shoot the Piano Player. In fact, I think that they used to be, you know, shown as a double bill, maybe at the Bleecker Street, which is where, I saw a lot of these movies for the first time and I found uh, shoot the piano player more moving. <laughs> I mean, it's more romantic, you know, you could see that it, you know, it's appeal for a teenager, you know, is, is much greater. And also the, uh, uh, the style is more overt, you know, the, the, the playful style that said, Truffaut never made an, <laughs> a movie that affected me as much as, as shoot the piano player where Godard just, went on, you know, doing these, these, these incredible things. Um, if I could say the movie that the two movies that, that most impressed me as a, as a young person were Pierrot Le Fou, which of course also has a kind of romantic quality to it and, and Belmondo and also Anna Karina, who, you know, I loved like all male teenage <laughs> CES of the, of the time. And the two or three things I know about her, two or three things I know about it just blew my mind as cinema. That just astounded me, but that's that's a bit later than than Breathless. So I I think that it was insofar as I can tell. I don't think it was the innovations. I think it was I think it was the attitude that. But I think you raise an important point about the evolution of of Godard's work. Truffaut, you know, and it, what really went on to make the films of quality that he had deplored in that famous article about a certain tendency in French cinema. Uh, whereas Godard was just re- restlessly inventive, as as restlessly inventive as a Miles Davis or or Bob Dylan, he kept pushing himself. And the period that uh, that followed, I think, that began in around 1961 or 62, the Karina years, was one of his most glorious. Oh, I think the whole period between Breathless and uh, uh, and Weekend in 1967 is, I would say, the greatest run that any filmmaker ever had. 
I mean, you know, one and sometimes three a year that he's uh, uh, he's turning out. I mean, personally, I mean, Alphaville was another film that like astounded me when when I saw it. I mean, they they all seemed great <laughs> in, in, during that period, and they were recognizably by the same guy. I mean, it's not you know that there there was a Godardian aspect to them, but they were all different. I mean, he really was just like uh, I got the feeling that he was making it up each time that he uh, went, when he went out to make a film. And, and the films of that period, they, they have these remarkably poetic passages, but they're never complacent. You know, they, they owe a lot to Brecht and to Brecht's ideas about defamiliarization. I'm thinking of the way that Godard uses intertitles or the, the way that he draws upon uh, passages uh, from literature and music. We're kind of on our toes all the time. Yeah, and and I would say that 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 they're not always sustained. I mean, a lot of times they have a, there's a patch, you know, like late in the film where suddenly it just becomes kind of turgid and and you lose it, and then it it, it comes back. And I attribute that to the fact that he was. He, I I don't think that he was exactly an improviser, but in some respects he was. I mean, he would show up on the set, and the actors would get their lines if they had lines that day. I mean, he didn't rehearse things. And I think he was also kind of like Miles Davis in the studio, very cryptic about what he wanted from them. Oh, yeah. And, and, and you know, the, these stories about his, his directing are just fascinating that he, he loved to confound, you know, the continuity person. Also, you know, there's something that, that, that I saw. Uh, I, I recently revisited um, uh, The 400 Blows, which uh, uh, to write something on that. Uh, which uh, I, I don't mean to say that that, that Truffaut only made one uh, good movie. That's that's the Four Hundred Blows is 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 a, is a remarkable and you know film and a landmark. But there's there's something in it late in the film where there's this direct interview of uh, Jean Pierre Leo, the the young star. He's being questioned off camera about his life. It's only, I think it's I think it's a, a, a psychologist who's talking to him. Very strong. I mean, that's the kind of thing I think that Godard picked up on that almost immediately. And that became his trademark, where he just, these actors would just be interviewed, but you never heard the questions. You know, he'd be like feeding them questions through a tiny microphone, you know, and they'd have to come up with, with answers as, as he, he filmed them. He was drawing on everything. This is also why people compared him during the 60s to, uh, to Andy Warhol, you know, this kind of immediacy in dealing with uh, actors and, and situations, which uh, is unusual to say the least. I thought you put it brilliantly in your Nation piece when you wrote that, that Godard understood film history as a text to be referenced, criticized, and revised, that he, he was the first filmmaker really to enter into the field with a fully developed sense of the medium's evolution. And uh, cinema needed the movie intellectual who exercised the capacity to rethink the medium with every new film. And Godard created that role, and he cast himself. Yeah, uh, no, I think that that's that's part of his genius, and I think it's part of his genius that he did this, if not intuitively, reflexively. This would have seemed natural to him. I mean, there's nothing, you know. There are there are other filmmakers, highly intelligent filmmakers. I'm thinking of Alexander Kluge would be an, an example, somebody who was also influenced by Brecht and and. Did certain things. I mean, he he knew about Godard too, but it's it's there's a studied quality to it 
which Godard didn't have. I mean, Godard has this this real, this spontaneity. And I think that when you bring up uh, Miles Davis, I think that that's, you know, like a uh, an American thing as well. You know, this certain kind of freedom and spontaneity, which you didn't see very much in, um, let's say, in, in world cinema before Godard, but which you could find in, in, uh, in American culture. And that uh, he responded to that and he could bring this, you know, fantastic insight to bear in a way that was not weighty, in a sense. I mean, and those were the years, the the 1960s, when uh, Godard was making films about the people he called the children of Marx and Coca-Cola, a line from uh, Masculin Feminin. And uh, uh, I, he really embodied that youth culture. I mean, he was a bit he was a bit older, of course. He was observing them with some detachment, but he was fascinated by French by French youth. Susan Sontag wrote a marvelous piece about Godard. I think in toward the end of that period, I think just before May sixty eight, and she was already, I think, onto something about the work when she said that Godard is not merely an intelligent iconoclast. He is a deliberate destroyer of cinema. Now, Weekend, uh, his you know great film of 1967 that concludes with scenes of uh, revolutionaries uh, engaging in cannibalism, that ends with the quote, end of story, end of cinema. Can you talk a little bit about these exhilarating, destructive passions in Godard, the, the scenes of apocalypse, the... Uh, the, the car crashes, and also the way he is really rewriting the rules of, of filmmaking. Yeah, well, you could see this right from, you know, uh, Breathless with the jump cuts, which didn't come about because he uh, happened on what, you know, a stylistic trademark, but because he handed in a film that was uh, half an hour too long. And, and he just like went there, maybe not at random, but, you know, like just hacked, you know, it out in, 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 in a way that, you know, nobody else had ever trimmed the movie. So, so I think that's there. You know, I mean, it's just part of modernism. I think that this this destructive quality. I mean, you could say that you know, like uh, you know, Picasso really destroyed, you know, not just the you know the notion of a painting, but human physiognomy in, in a way that Faulkner kind of destroyed the novel during his great period. And he's and he's not the only one. So I think that the fact that Godard was doing this in what had hitherto been assumed to be a popular medium. I mean, that's something to keep in mind also. People didn't expect that much from movies. You had to be a, f- a fairly uh, sophisticated uh, moviegoer to see what was so special about uh, uh, Jean Renoir when those films were new, that he applied this to something, some conventions which were in- completely internalized. Like everybody knew how to look at a movie. Before <laughs> you didn't have to go to school to to learn how to look at movies before Godard, and so he 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 deranged that. I mean, his own person. If you're talking about his own personal feelings of destruction, I mean, I don't know that he was a particularly self-destructive person. He certainly was destructive in his relationships with other with other people. He he did he did try to commit suicide on on a number of occasions in the early '60s after an argument with uh, Anna Karina. He tried, he slit his wrists. And uh, there were, I think, two other suicide attempts. And he made a film, uh, which I haven't seen, in 2015, in which he imagined his own death. And in his death scene, he's uh, reading Faulkner's Sanctuary, since you just mentioned uh, uh, Faulkner. Um, I was listening to an interview with, uh, with Godard the other day where he 
said that um, cinema began with a seductive error, and the the error was that was that film could be more effective at painting emotions than painting or telling stories than the novel. And he went on and elaborated on that point. I, I found that interesting because if anyone embodies cinema and and its and its potential, it's 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 Godard. And and yet he's not a quote unquote pure filmmaker. He's not simply about the unfolding of an image. His works are like total works of art. They include many uh, quotations from literature. There's a there's a kind of a almost like a, a kind of collage like quality to some of the works. And he was also uh, fascinated, as you know, by uh, by music and and used music very inventively. Whether it was a Beethoven quartet or a a song by Patti Smith or the whole catalog really of ECM records. Since in you know late in his career, he developed this collaboration with with Manfred Eicher, the 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 um the director of ECM. Well, it's uh, it's a similar thing. It's it's uh, fragmentation and repetition. You know, I mean, I think that that it's it's fair to say, and I don't know whether he ever commented on this, but that the that the essence of cinema is is uh, is montage, and this is what what cinema brought to the other arts in the in the twentieth century because everybody began doing versions of that. But it it originates from cinema, and especially once a sound comes in, and the, and you have you're able to do what's what's called a uh, uh, you know a vertical montage. Yeah, I mean, often the uh, the soundtrack can be more interesting, <laughs> more radical than what you're looking at. Because he never used music to create or encourage emotions or to tell us what to feel. He used them in counterpoint. And and also, I mean, in general, I would say that he made uh, something that um, I would call film objects. I mean, this is this is this is my own sense of it. I remember, you know, like occasionally I would get let when I was a, uh, a weekly film critic for The Village Voice, I would get letters or emails from readers who would accuse me of like, why didn't you, you know, you couldn't take the journey of this film. You know, they would refer to films as like journeys or, you know, and it's, it's like, you know, I never felt that. It's like something that you look at. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a manufactured thing. I mean, that's, that's how I I felt about it, you know, that it was like I, I didn't lose myself particularly in the uh, uh, in the movie, unless it's something like Casablanca, where it's like, hard, you, it's very hard to do that, you know, but that's an, that's an exception. Otherwise, it was an object. And I think that that's part of the essence of what Godard was doing. He was making film objects, and people were not necessarily ready for that, and, and, and still aren't. I mean, you know, there's a lot of attention being paid to Godard uh, now, of course, and uh, everybody, I'm sure that Hollywood, you know, there'll be a thing, you know, in the in the Oscars next year and so on. But, you know, the only hit that he ever made was was Breathless. None of his other movies were particularly successful, and yet he continued doing this. Plus, he totally lost his audience after after Weekend and never got it back. What What did happen after Weekend? Well, first Godard said that he was going to give up uh, cinema altogether. But he didn't, and uh, he made a, a, a kind of an interesting movie for French TV, which never got the uh, broadcast, a conversation between two militants. But then he teamed up with a, uh, a much younger guy. Um, Jean-Pierre Gorin. Jean-Pierre Gorin, who, who sort of was his um, political advisor. I don't know. They called themselves the Ziga Vertov Group, named after you know, the uh, celebrated Soviet documentary maker. And I remember them 
saying, yes, well, the Ziegabertov group has a right wing and a left wing. It was only these two people in it. You know, that was that was amusing. And then they made these unbelievably dry sectarian films. I mean, they seemed so at the time, almost un unwatchable. And yet, if you look at them now, despite, you know, like the tedious uh, voiceover and, and so on, there's some inventive things that are happening uh, in terms of the film, particularly the one that's called, uh, uh, one of its titles is Vladimir and, and Rosa, which is his version of the uh, trial of the, of the Chicago 7 and so on. And they, and they were made in 16 millimeter. They were, they were close to being underground films. You know, they were intriguing, but disappointing, I think, to, to many people who were Godard partisans. Then he broke that group up and he, he teamed up with uh, Anne-Marie Melville, who would, he would work with for the rest of his life. I think the first movie that they made together, although he doesn't credit her, is Numero Deux, which is a movie that is entirely played out on video monitors, which is fantastic. It was another, you know, like stroke of genius to make this movie. And you couldn't see it anywhere. It was the most frustrating thing. I mean, I remember reading about it. The New York Film Festival wouldn't show it. I mean, finally, uh, a woman, uh, uh, Jackie Reynal, who was a, uh, a sort of an avant-garde filmmaker in, in France who had moved to New York and so on, opened it at, at a theater, you know, in the mid-70s. And there was a tiny audience for it, for something that was clearly a great, innovative film. And then he and Melville went on to do stuff for television, which was frustrating but fascinating. And then at the end of the 70s, he, he made his comeback film. He called it his second first film. Well, Numero Deux was supposed to be his second first film, but but then he made, I guess, his third first film, uh, Sauve Qui Peut. Is that Sauve Qui Peut La Vie? Um, which in the, the 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 English title was Every Man for Himself. Every Man for Himself. Um, with uh, with the singer Jacques Dutronc playing a a character named Jean Jean Paul Godard. A Paul Godard, I think. Right, and uh, Isabelle Huppert is 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 in that. I mean, she you know like the hottest of then of young French actresses. And um, it was okay. It was fine. But to, to me, it was nothing special. But then it, that brought about back a whole series of films. Passion was one. And then he, he went on to make films sort of based on... With Hannah Shigula, the great German actress who'd been in Fassbender's films. Yeah, using and, and a Polish actor who had been in um, Vida's films and, and so on. So these were, these were sort of trendy films they were very physically beautiful and not without interest but kind of inert he for a, more than a decade i think for you know like 15 years he turned out movies like this often based on sort of western archetypes he made a version of carmen he made king lear the one that i that i sort of like the best now although i i wasn't crazy about it when i saw it is his uh, hail mary his version of of the uh, the annunciation which provoked a real outcry, I think, from the church. Oh, completely. Sight unseen, of course. But it's, it's, it's pretty amusing. I mean, there's a lot of talk about like life coming from outer space in it and beautifully photographed. It might have been, I don't know if it was shot in Switzerland or, or France. That's another thing. He changed his base of operations to Switzerland, and which accounted for a certain kind of beauty, but blandness too, I thought. Anyway, these films brought him back into festivals. and certainly. People who were cineasts, you know, and, and Godard fans went to see them and, and liked them, but they didn't generate anything near the excitement of his, uh, his, his early films. 
then he had another breakthrough, I feel, in the, in the 90s when he made Histoire de Cinema for television, which was, you know, he availed himself of the um, VCR, <laughs> I think, to, to amass, you know, like a huge library of cinema. And he just began to play with it, you know, to layer it, to comment on it, to juxtapose things and so on. I think it's about four and a half hours. This again was mind boggling for those who saw it. I mean, I remember, you know, when the first time it was shown at the Museum of Modern Art going to see these things and running into these filmmakers, most of them, you know, like uh, avant-garde or experimental filmmakers were ecstatic. I mean, people couldn't believe this, even when you couldn't understand it, which was a lot of the time. Well, they're they're very layered, almost, um, you know, you mentioned that his films were art objects. These were almost Joycean in their in their fragmentation. And but they returned to, to some of his old obsessions like neorealism or the depiction of the Holocaust. Um, but I, I consider to me, it's like he made a move from being the first postmodern director in the 60s to a kind of high modernism. It's, it's Joyce. It's Ezra Pound. Uh, in a way, it's it's uh, uh, Walter Benjamin. What I think is true of the movies that he made in the 21st century, of which I think there are maybe four or five, he again became, you know, like so radical in terms of his use of form and technology. I mean, using GoPros, he made a 3D movie. I mean, these movies are very fragmented and they're, and they're, they're quoting things again. But these movies, I think, were, I think he, he went out... <laughs> you know, with a, with a series of extraordinary films, which gives his, his career an even weirder <laughs> arc. He was the oldest and the youngest filmmaker in cinema. Yeah, yeah, somebody, yes, somebody said that, yeah. This episode of the LRB podcast is sponsored by the MIT Press. Despite decades of global research, scientists have never been able to replicate the perfect engineering of the human heart. In her new book, The Exquisite Machine, Leading cardiac researcher Sean Harding explores how new scientific developments like ultra-fast imaging, gene editing and AI are opening up the hidden mysteries of the heart. You'll learn about how the heart has evolved to respond to damage, the relationship between emotions and heart function, and what we can do to prevent and treat heart disease. If you enjoy non-fiction in science, medicine or health and wellness, don't miss The Exquisite Machine. Now available everywhere books are sold. Learn more at mitpress.mit.edu. Jim, I, I want to ask you a question about the about the Giga Vertov period. As you said at the time, it was seen as you know an abandonment of this you know magnificent career as it turned to something that really wasn't about about cinema. And yet, you know, Godard was pretty insistent that he was making films politically, not making political films. I mean, he really had very little patience with um, the kind of classical engagé cinema, the cinema of commitment and, you know, films like uh, Costa Gavras's Z, films that told you what to think. Uh, that's not what he was doing. Even when he was, you know, spending time with Palestinian Fedayeen and Jordan or filming the Black Panthers or, or filming Strikes, he was still making Godardian films, right? Wasn't he? Well, in some sense, he was, and the uh, the irony, I guess, is that th there were, there was no audience for these films. I mean, militants had no use for these films, and cineasts were perplexed, let's say. But he did remain Godard. I mean, the the, the one exception was Tu Fabien, which was a commercial film, and he had been in a in a uh, a terrible motorcycle accident, 
uh, before making that film. So that film was was largely directed by Garand without Godard. And um, I think that Garand did a, a reasonably good job of, of kind of imitating a Godard film. I mean, it's, it's, it's not great, but it's, it has certain qualities and it certainly made this, this point about a strike and uh, um, had these, these two big stars in it. And, and, and I think it got pretty good, respectful reviews when it, when it came out. But it was shown with a 16 millimeter film called Letter to Jane, which was basically for an hour, an analysis of this, this picture of uh, this news photo of Jane Fonda in North Vietnam. And it's being annotated. And, and it was withering, too. It was an absolutely withering critique. This attack on her with these two guys ganging up on her, you know, and, and attacking her. I mean, it's just, it's actually, it's it, in a way, it's, it's so shameful. But it was also like a brilliant piece of filmmaking. I mean, the idea that you could make an hour-long film based on one image, I mean, that's something that, that, that had really only occurred to Michael Snow. <laughs> at that point, I mean, uh, uh, he made he made a film based on a single the, a, a slide and, and a tape, but uh, the the same thing. I mean, it was it was a fantastic idea, and uh, although as I say, it's hard to show. I mean, I show it sometimes when I'm teaching, but you know, you really have to like make allowances for this utterly unfair treatment of Jane Fonda, and I mean, it's unfair from every attitude and even kind of willfully stupid. I mean, they're blaming her for the, for the uh, composition of the photograph. She didn't take the photograph and they're, they're blaming her in essence for having made a movie with them. I mean, these guys are, co- are completely nuts yet from a formal aspect, you know, it's fascinating. They even say some interesting things. Godard would then go on to say to Fabian, that was Goran's film. Letter to Jane was my film. Well, I mean, what you've just said also underlines something about Godard's personality. I mean, he was beyond grouchy. He was impossible. He had violent uh, ruptures with um, many of his friends, I mean, including Truffaut. Did you ever spend any time with Godard? Did you ever meet him? I met him once. And what was that like? Well, I came along. I, I, I was a the third string reviewer at the Village Voice. This is in 1980. And uh, a uh, colleague of mine who was a wrote for a, another weekly, got to interview Godard. This is when uh, uh, Every Man for Himself was at the New York Film Festival or right before it went into release or something like that. So he, he wanted me to come along as a, as a kind of a wingman because, you know, every we're all totally intimidated. I mean, the idea of, of sitting down with Godard was beyond intimidating. I mean, uh, I wouldn't have known how to interview this guy. And neither did did my colleague. I mean, uh, the first thing he said to Godard was like, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Godard, you've always been my culture hero. Like, you can imagine Godard like rolling his eyes. I mean, like, this is what he needed, you know, to uh, hear. But who knows what one should have said to him. Anyway, this whole thing was conducted over a a meal that a publicist set up of like this sort of like candy-like Chinese, certain kind of Chinese food that you could only get uptown, you know, very, very sweet and sugary and so we're eating this stuff and Godard is hoping to get a movie funded by Coppola who was then in the in the business of of doling out you know after you know I think it was it was Zoe Trope Pictures right that's right I mean they distributed you know Zebraberg's uh, Hitler film they gave uh, vendors uh, uh, money to make uh, Hammett so Godard wanted to make a version of uh, do the Bugsy Siegel story shot in Las Vegas with De Niro as, as Buzz, Bugsy Siegel. And I don't know, there was a part also for uh, Diane Keaton. 
you know, the typical Godard thing, you know, we'll get, we'll get Jane Fonda and, uh, <laughs> and Eve Montan. You know what I mean? He had this, this, as if he wanted to repeat the Gene Seberg thing, but never could, you know, anyway, it never went anywhere, but there was a lot of talk about it. And he was going to go to Las Vegas, I think, to look at locations or something like that. So I just, I hadn't said anything, but then I thought I, I, th- I thought of something clever to, to say, because I had recently been to Las Vegas and had had this thought, been very impressed with it. This is before Las Vegas got really gentrified, you know, became a family entertainment thing. So, so I said to him, oh, what do you think, of, you know, who do you think would have been more interested in Las Vegas, uh, Freud or Marx? Okay. And and he just like looked at me with like such total disdain. I mean, he didn't even bother to answer. He just went back back to his his food. And that was my that was my meeting with with Godard. Thanks so much, Jim. It's been really great to talk to you about Godard. Oh, it was a pleasure for me. Join me after the break. I'll be talking to Claire Denis. Joining me now from Paris is Claire Denis, whose most recent film, Stars at Noon is about to be released. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I was reading something that, that you said recently in The Guardian, Claire, um, that, that you'd said to friends that I couldn't imagine a world in which I was alive, but Jean-Luc Godard uh, was gone. Yeah. Did, did, you, did, you, did you know Godard? Oh, not, not knowing, no. I didn't know him, no. We met in some places, but not knowing each other. No, not at all. But you grew up in the... 1960s and you know you were in, in a sense one of those children of Marx and Coca-Cola I mean you I mean of course you I mean you came up in that era when his films were first being shown do you do, do you recall I that strongly the first memory I have of a Godard of Jean-Luc Godard movies my mother I was not in we were mostly we were living in Africa with no theater and because we were in France for some reason, changing countries or whatever, meeting my grandparents. My mother so restless. And I remember her coming home and telling me and my sisters, I've seen a film that is from a new world, something completely different. And it changed completely my sensation about film watching in a good way she was blown up she said i never seen such uh, actors so natural and good looking and and the way they were speaking i mean my mother was crazy about breastless so i saw godard movie as, as soon as i could of course you know did you did, did, did it make this a similar impression on you yeah it was not even a new film when i saw it you know but it was, I still think every film I saw from Jean-Luc Godard from then on till the last one, Le Livre d'Image, I think everything seemed to me above modernity, above being modern or not modern, you know? Let's say like a, someone digging a trench in movie material and trying to build a different path, maybe. I imagine that must have felt like an inspiration and a permission in a way to make the kind of work that you make, to do things that, to to film things that hadn't been filmed in that quite that way before. I was not aware 
thanks God, if I, it, it, the good thing in making movie is already to know, to try to figure out the best way to, to make that film I want to make, it, it's certainly not, let's say there must be a sort of a not being aware to be innocent in a way, you know? Otherwise, mm. it, it's a little bit hard, you know? Of course. I mean, it's interesting that, that, that Godard found a way to do it while at the same time being totally engaged with the culture, music, and literature of the past in his films, the way that he draws on passages from literature, quotes from music. And actually, music, I think, is something that, that connects Godard uh, to you as well, because I mean, you've worked very closely with with Tinder Sticks. You've also um, done re really remarkable things with music. I'm thinking of the the the, the Commodore song in uh, in Trente-Cinq for example. I mean, Godard was someone who really thought about how music could work with the image. Yeah, I must say, so many times I wanted to use uh, a piece of Ravel, and I didn't do it. Because of Jean-Luc Godard, I said, no, I can't do that. He, no, let, let's, let's not do it. It will be too close to a Godard choice, you know? No. But in a way, I think Godard, of course, when I said, I don't imagine I will be alive in a world where Jean-Luc Godard is no more alive, I was sincere. It, it's as if... There, there was no stop, a sort of endless march of filmmaking, you know? I know I am a mortal. I know my life will end. But GLJ was a sort of a symbol of film, movie, uh, cinema, is, no, not film, cinema is going on, you know? Um, sort of cinema at its limits of creativity at the far at the far edges of creativity yeah and maybe some people will hate hear that as if it was too pretentious or too french to like him and on the other hand i think the apart together with is uh sense of humor, sometimes a little bit cruel. Uh, there was, uh, he, he has this irony, you know, when he was speaking to people. And I think in a way it was good because some people could not hear that irony without thinking he was too pretentious. And I think there is, in the making of his film, I don't know, I'm not him, maybe, maybe pretension is there, I don't know. But I always see a sign of looking, I would say looking for beauty. It sounds ridiculous. But on the other hand, although he was questioning the spirituality of life, and on the other hand, I have never seen, um, he was always paying a lot of attention to beauty. Beauty, not... And color, too, right? I mean, color, yeah. his use of color. 
he was he was a painter, not not a painter. He was a an artist in in the shape, in the form, in the color, and there was never a face of a man or a face of of a woman, old or young, that was not filmed with a great respect for the beauty. Mm. And this, for me, is is really important. I think it, it makes a big difference with just making image, you know? Uh, you know, you point out this, you know, commitment to beauty, or at least the search for beauty and his respect for the faces, the image of his actors. I, I do think people overlook that. I think another aspect of his films that's overlooked is um, the, the, the tenderness, the surprising tenderness of his, some of his films, and also the way that he could tell love stories. I mean, Alphaville and uh, Le Mépris, Contempt, th- those, are, those are love stories. Yes. Also Le Petit Soldat, in a way. It's a love story, a very sad one, but it's a love story. Now, Michel Subor was in Le Petit Soldat, and you you cast him in a remarkable film years later. Were you, had you been thinking of Le Petit Soldat when you cast him? I, I had this, I was offered to make a film, and I, I, I was thinking about the foreign legion. And while I, when I had finished the script, I thought, the best for me, as if it has been there, the best thing I could do would be to have the master at arms, the commandant to be interpreted by Michel Subot. And he was nowhere, no more um, an actor. I mean, his agent told me he lives outside in the country and we find him and he came to meet us in Paris. And he was very surprised. I remember he said, okay, I, uh, give me the script. I will um, read it. And the next day, or two days after he came back, he had shaved his hair. And he said, okay, I'm going to lose weight a little bit. And that was it, you know. He was already in the film and... He was curious to know why the name of his character was Bruno Forestier. He said, and I told him, it's the name of Le Petit Soldat, Bruno Forestier. And I thought, because at at the end of Le Petit Soldat, you run away after shooting that guy in the street, you, you said, I still have time in front of me. I thought after leaving the French army, killing a guy in Switzerland, maybe the best was the foreign legion. And he was laughing. And of course he was, he was the best for me. You know, Godard's body of work is enormous. And there are so many periods uh, from, you know, the, the years, the, the Karina, the films he made with Anna Karina, the films of Wia Zemsky, the, the Giga Vertov, Mieville. I mean, it's, it's such an enormous body of work. It's impossible. Uh, to summarize, but are there any Godard films to which you feel especially close that have been touchstones for you? I think for me, Le Livre d'Image, the last one I saw, one. I saw it on a screen and also as an exhibition, both. But it's not completely true because there is, uh, I never start shooting, never on the set, there is 
something to remind me uh, a frame, an image. Right now I'm looking in front of me, there is a window and a roof, a Parisian roof, and it's sunny. And I don't know, I, it could be framed in a way, I, I know how to frame it because maybe I have in my memory so many frame of Jean-Luc Godard. And also the way since the very beginning, him and his editor, this woman who was editing with him, decide to brusque the editing, to collapse the editing, to make, not to obey to the law of editing, but to obey to the law of feeling and sensation, impression, I don't know. I mean, the just to clue in some of our our listeners the 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 livre d'image uh the the image book uh godard's last film is is i think one of the it's one of the few films aside from uh, his histoire du cinéma in which he doesn't use actors it's um mm. it's it's an essay of of, yeah. of found footage uh, including some images from his own films yeah and, yeah. A, and a reflection on war and on neorealism and on the fate of the arab revolutions it's like a film that no one else could have made no but the thing is he he get this very strange way of sort of produces his work you know he had this place editing room camera he has a sort of lab he was working every day i'm sure to the end i'm sure two weeks ago he was working i'm sure and that mean he was he was not like a crazy inventor he was a searcher you know he was searching and he was influenced by so much the the oh, my english is horrible today i'm sorry no 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 no, no. no I, he was influ- he was listening to the world uh, the other day i was hearing someone say how oh, jean luc godard was such a uh, antisemitic guy and i said i i never felt that i i think he chose like he was in sarajevo he was also uh, friend with a po- poet. Uh, uh, um, with Elias San- Elias Elias Sandbar, the the Palestinian yeah. poet, whom I I met because he was also a friend of Jean Luc Nancy, and uh, the French philosopher. So, I mean, it's not that simple to reduce Godard to an anti-Semitic guy. I there are many things I I could. Um, I've heard when he was shooting detective and he could be horrible to people sometime on the set. I, I was there on a set a few days, but horrible in a way, it was cruel to ask someone, let's say a professional person in filmmaking. And suddenly you ask that, you, you tell that person, you you are a prisoner of your technique you know it's cruel in a way and i know it was unfair because he he was 
trying to gain time for him by trying to uh, unbalance the to provoke to provoke a bit provoke and to, to to keep time for him you know because on a set people are waiting on the director always you know and to provoke the sound guy or the boom or the dp it, it's like creating a sort of space of time for you you know what i mean mm -hmm. to invent a space for for yourself and ultimately to serve the ends of the film ultimately but at, <laughs> on, on the spot it, it's not so great but probably yes but any anyway i think even the people who were the victim of that recognize it made them change a little bit or sometime more than a little bit their habit in 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 work you know their habit in in lighting a scene their habit in recording sound you know my sense is that a lot of french film that that in france there is on the one hand a great reverence for godard and at the same time a discomfort you know that 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 he you know in recent years he's i, I think he felt actually quite uh, neglected in france and I, I remember reading an article by elias sandbar where he I, I think he brought him to uh he showed some films by godard and godard didn't expect anyone to come and in fact there were these long lines at, uh, I believe it was the Institut du Monde Arabe to see uh, uh, a number of his films projected. Um, what happened? Why, why was there this? Uh, I, I think so many people were, um, it was not abandoned, not neglected, not, but the thing is few people, very loud, were happy, to say Godard, oh Godard, Godard, you know? And in a way, in a way I think Godard, maybe I'm, I'm inventing, I'm inventing, I don't know. But I had the feeling sometime he was happy to say with his very special voice, nasty sometime, that he was a victim. You know, not a victim, but he would never use the word victim, but neglected, you know. And I think in the deep of himself, he knew so many people, he meant so much, he knew that. I'm sure it's impossible, he wasn't aware. But French people are, they're like, it was like a, a sort of, Oh, Godard, you know, let's, you know, it was like a, a, a sort of a way to, uh, for people to protect themselves, to say, to criticize Godard, but it was too much, you know, yeah. there was so much attention toward him and in a way, jealousy, you know, and you see, when he died, it was like a big shock here, you know? Not like the Queen of England in, in Great Britain or even in France. And not only he died, but he chose 
something that is possible in Switzerland. It's a physician-assisted suicide. Yeah. And he, he asked his family to not only to help him through the process, but to announce it, you know. So the people, and, and the week he died, it's the week where the French parliament is discussing something that in France would be called to die in dignity. Mm. So it was like his last message, you know. It's big in a way, you know. It's huge. And what, it doesn't matter if people, I'm sure he knew he was such a hero, but he like, I remember when they were preparing this exhibition of his at the Centre Pompidou in Paris. He fight with probably with everyone. And then he said, oh, I leave, I can't work like that. You know, I, I don't know, I was not there, but I heard things. But he left, he let in the Centre Pompidou, the maquette, how do you say the maquette? The models. The models. And then the Centre Pompidou decide to allow people to visit what was a sort of rehearsal of the real exhibition. And this model exhibition was incredibly strong, you know. I think I went three times, you know. And in, in the center of it, two rooms. But at the end of the first room, there was this little toy train going back, back and forth with a little noise, as if it was for everyone, forever, the sign of Shoah, you know? And this, this let's say, pre-exhibition, unfinished exhibition uh, was, of course, I'm sure, what he had in mind. And he left because he felt this unfinished version was the best to make it bigger and there was no way to accomplish more. It was the best, you know? And he knew that. So by saying, oh, I can't stand this. I have to, I don't want, I leave, I'm, I'm going back home. I think it was not really true, you know? Maybe it's my <laughs> imagination. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you about, uh, about Jean-Luc Godard. Merci.